Today on The Blackout, psychology calls itself a behavioral science, but how are we actually doing on studying behavior? And a letter about getting and seeking faculty retention offers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here, as always, with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. I feel like I say, as always, always, so maybe I should say, <laughs> as always, as always. Would that be a... Uh, are we just going to, like, spiral? This is going to be, like, every every time we record a new episode, I'm going to add an as, yeah, always. as always. And then, like, a year from now, that'll be the entire episode. Yeah. <laughs> It's weird how you become, I don't know about you guys, so I actually do listen to our episodes um, and sort of grit my teeth through the parts where I'm talking, but I I like listening to you guys and sometimes I forget things we said, but um, you become, when you listen to yourself, like I've become really aware of my vocal tics, I get really annoyed with myself for certain things, I don't know if you guys have that experience. Yeah, I hate the way I laugh, that's my least favorite Oh my god, I hate the way I laugh so much. Yeah, I really hate that. That's the worst thing. But also, I find that now that I listen to the podcast, just like speaking in regular contexts, I hear my voice more, which yeah. I also find really annoying. Yeah. Do you guys have that? Terrible. Do you guys have that with writing as well? Do you go back and look at old writing? And I cannot or is it tell because writing which reviewer is more I am when I get a decision letter. That I was <laughs> now I can because I signed my, signed my reviews, but I still, until I get to the signature, I cannot tell which one I was. I'm so good at forgetting everything I say and write. It's amazing. Oh, I'd be a really good subject to know within subjects design because I would immediately forget the previous condition. <laughs> Another thing that happens to me too when I, I actually rarely listen straight through to our episodes, but... the times that I do um it's interesting to hear a conversation when you're not involved in it um like first of all you hear the all our listeners right now are like no duh (laughs) 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 but I feel like it's an interesting observation because (laughs) it's like when you're when you're in the conversation you like it's almost like you feel like you're saying more than you do or uh, yeah. you you know all the thoughts that you're having that you don't vocalize and also like I will I hear more of what you guys are saying when I listen to the episode because <laughs> <laughs> during the conversation I just sort of like, like zone out. you guys out you know that's funny you're like rehearsing and plan my next, next statement this is related to our main topic today actually but when I started doing research with the electronically activated recorder that year I wore it myself to see what it's like and then I listened to myself and like 90% of the time I would remember what I thought I was saying and I wasn't saying anything like I would have a thought or thought yeah I'd have something that I thought I expressed and then I would be completely silent I'd be like "Mm mm-hmm and I remember like no I said all these things that I was thinking but I didn't say them yeah it's a good lesson actually well did you compare uh, it before and after alcohol and see whether your threshold changed? Yeah. <laughs> I think back then I didn't drink, so I didn't have that. Mm. I wonder, that's actually an interesting hypothesis because I could see it going out either way, right? Like when you're drunk, maybe like you make even less sense. On the other hand, maybe you're thinking less things, so there's a better correspondence yeah, right. the, between the your words and your thoughts. The you have that you share is 100%. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> right, yeah. all, it's all just out there. I remember, yeah. like, I think this was pretty... Um, 
shortly after I'd met you, you said that you thought that the effect that alcohol had on you was that it lowered your threshold for talking. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you still feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, especially in groups where I'm like, I can tell that I haven't said anything in like 45 minutes and I'm like, okay, I just need to have a drink and then. Yeah. Maybe I'll say something. I wonder if it's the same for me. I'm much more worried about saying stupid things, which I think is warranted. So maybe I'm more, but probably not more cautious. That seems unlikely. Well, speaking of thresholds for producing words, (laughs) Samin, you were commenting recently about how your blogging has gone down. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about why, because I think yours has too, although maybe less noticeably in your case. In my case, I think it was a sharp drop. Yeah, so I would be curious to know your, I have no idea what your reasons are unless I project my own. Like for me, it's blogging has shifted since I started doing it. And I don't know if it's blogging in general or if it's just my own approach to blogging and it might be some of both. But blogging when I started, like there, when I started, Twitter existed, but nobody Mm -hmm. in academia was on it. And blogging was super informal and nobody really read blogs, certainly not my blog. And so it felt like a place I could just dump thoughts without processing them. And blogging, it feels like, I mean, in my case, like, you know, more people than the zero that read my blog at first now, you know, will will see something. But also it just feels like as a form, it's become more, I've, and some of this may be because social media exists now. So like the the being informal now happens on Twitter or I mean now for me the podcast is my outlet to think out loud and be informal yeah and so blogging feels like I have to have my thoughts better organized I have to there's some sense that people will actually look back to it and so I'll be accountable for what I say it can't be just what I think today Hmm. Um, and so that's I've found myself like I do the same thing I've I've started a bunch of blogs and it get it's gotten to the point where I'm like well if I'm going to put the amount of work that I feel like I'm supposed to to make this into a blog, I should probably write an article about this. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's it's sort of that that middle ground has kind of gotten narrower. But I, I'm curious about you, Samin. What, where? Yeah, some of those things are true. Like I think my the fact that Twitter has replaced some of the things I would say in a blog post I say on Twitter now. Um, I'm, I worry a lot about being repetitive, which I was I was already repetitive before, but I didn't worry about it that much. Now I also don't trust myself to remember if I have already blogged about something. I have a full draft of <laughs> blog posts that I might post this week, but I think I've already blogged about exactly this topic. Um, and also like I do have, I feel like I still get a lot of top ideas of topics I want to blog about, but then that's almost makes me paralyzes me because then I'm like, well, why should I write about this topic when there's these other five topics I think are more important, but I it, are not as easy to write a blog post about. So I like don't like that I end up writing about the stuff that's easier to write about, which is like the more similar stuff to what I've already blogged about. Um, I think some of it too, I might be, well, one other thing is like when I started blogging, I felt like I was adding my voice and it was adding a different voice for various reasons. Um, And now I feel like my voice gets heard more than enough and I probably should like not take up more, more space on the interwebs. So I don't that doesn't really stop me like it's not a disincentive but I don't have that incentive anymore I don't feel like oh well there aren't enough people like me getting their voices heard or something like that um and then maybe sup with sup with like becoming more high profile the costs of blogging have gone up like if I do make a misstep it'll be I have more I'm more I'm accountable to more things like it might reflect on sips or it might reflect on other things I've taken a leadership role in so I feel like there's more at stake now 
stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. sure. Actually, this also relates to our main topic. Like, can I really introspect on the reasons for my behavior? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that accountability thing you mentioned is really interesting because I, you know, I think about that as like I've gotten further along in my career and, and you know, and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure, even though for me, I do sometimes feel like I was saying more inhibited because I feel like I am more, I, I want to be right. And, and personally, like I kind of miss being freewheeling on the blog. But like I said, I have other outlets for that. And I'm also not sure in the grand scheme of things that that's a bad thing. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of think that if you're, you know, I mean, I think about this when I'm in leadership roles, like, you know, when I was, you know, department chair in my department, I'm associate head now or, or you know, things like that. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of my job to be criticized mm-hmm. and to take that yeah. and to be held accountable yeah. And so I'm not sure that I could really, like, complain. I just have to find those outlets other ways. No, guess, yeah. But, I'm not yeah. complaining at all. I think it's, sh- yeah, I think the more of a platform you have and the higher profile you are, the more leadership roles you have, the more you should be accountable, yeah. But it might make me hesitate more, which is maybe also yeah. fine. There's something, mm-hmm. and podcasting is interesting, because there's something about it, like, I have trouble, I, I can, I, have, I find it much easier to read an article I disagree with or a viewpoint I disagree with than to listen to a podcast about it. Cause like you have to spend a certain amount of time and you mm-hmm. can't kind of jump around or whatever. And so I also, I feel a little safer on the podcast cause I assume like anybody who's really going to disagree with me, isn't going to listen yeah, yeah. to the podcast long enough to get to the part where I'm saying anything yeah. controversial. <laughs> this is also interesting. I'm curious if this is true for you guys. I think I say a lot more, I disclose a lot more on the podcast than I would upon reflection. <laughs> like I think that if you had asked me ahead of time, like, how candid I should be. I would say definitely not this candid. When you say ahead of time, do you mean like before we started the podcast or do you mean like you would listen to an uh, episode now? Like and in the abstract, like, oh. in the abstract, if you asked me. Yeah, I think I feel that way too. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to have a like natural conversation and then also monitor yeah. your, what you say the way you think you should. Yeah. That's why I always have to cut out the inappropriate stuff that's being said. <laughs> I don't think I've ever cut out something that you've said yeah. that wasn't like totally trivial. Yeah. All my heavy like, breathing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do though, going back to our original the original question, I do want to get back to blogging more. Even though I know like blogs are less important now and people don't read them as much, I still really like that medium. I think it suits my personality well. I like yeah, I like written communication a lot. Are there are there any listeners who listen for the heavy breathing? I wonder. If that's, <laughs> that's like a thing. Really? We can there's do one. Show. We can do a specialty episode that's just yeah. There, heavy there's this like whale sounds yeah, to fall asleep. What is that? Like, <laughs> no, like there there are people who certain sounds like breathing or whispering or whatever, yeah. and I think it's like some people just get like a kind of weird like tingly positive sensation. Yeah. I think it's like it's like ASMR its or something, right? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's even made its way into like pornography or something. Like for some people, yeah, it's I feel like for some, for some people, people it's, people it's just it's... like enjoyable. Uh, I don't really like and where so... this is going. <laughs> <laughs> are you <laughs> asking if people are listening to our podcast for reasons of actually? Sexual yeah, I was, arousal? I was going to say let us know if you're doing that. No, actually, I don't want to know. No, please do not let us no. know if you're doing that. Just enjoy it silently. <laughs> no, don't in, stop in doing it. <laughs> you can't dictate how people use the podcast, I mean. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, let's do our letter. Let's this is this is going in a, a, a dangerous direction. Let's do our letter. Okay, yeah, this will this will change directions. Um, dear Black Goat Pod, 
What's the deal with faculty retention? There's a lot of advice on the interwebs about getting a job or being promoted to tenure. What about the sticky situation of outside offers and retention offers? Is there a typical approach or expectation to getting a retention offer from your institution? Or is anything goes type of situation? Thanks, Anonymous. I think this differs a lot by university, country, other like kind of categories. So I think it's hard to say generally, but I could speak to the types of universities I've been at. Yeah, I, when I went up for tenure last year, I got pretty like, well, I don't even know if it was that mixed advice about whether to go on the job market. So I definitely had some people telling me that it was stupid not to go on the job market, if only to get a retention offer um, or to try to get a retention offer. And I'm curious what you guys think about that. Um, I ended up not going on the job market for probably two reasons. One is that I don't like going on the job market and I'm and I think it takes a lot of effort. And the other is that I didn't have really any sincere intention of considering other jobs. Um, although I know that that can change once you know you have like a if you end up in a situation where you have a realistic alternative. Um, but I wasn't looking for another job. And then there, there's something to me that feels disingenuous about that. Although I know a lot of people would say that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, you intend to leave or not. So I think yeah, I'm curious what you think. Yeah. Even when people go on the market at tenure. I think if you have reason to think you might not get tenure, then you should go on the market. But then it's not just because mm-hmm. you want a right. retention offer. You're actually, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. might need a backup plan. But if you right. know or are very confident that you're going to get tenure or in any other situation where you know you're not going to leave, I don't think you should apply for jobs just for a retention offer unless you've tried other routes to getting treated fairly, like a, whatever, you have reasonable demands that are not getting met and it's been made clear to you that that's the only way you're going to get the things that you think you deserve. Then I think they've forced you into that position. It's not really a, your choice. Um, but that, that would be, I would, I would only think it was okay to do it completely a hundred percent for retention offer if you've been forced into that position. Hmm. So I, I have a, I think I might, I don't know if I disagree or if it's just a different point of view or, or maybe it's just, I agree on the conditionals, but I think the inputs to them are almost always in, in one direction or something because it's just so much a part of, and again, I, like you, Samin, I'm, I'm, you know, I can only speak about the sort of psychology, U.S. kind of R1 job market. Mm-hmm. So, so to, you know, anybody who's, who's not thinking of that, take, you know, what I say may or may not apply. But um, it's, it's just become so much a part of how salaries are determined. And it's, you know, from a sort of economics perspective, right? Like if you're a software engineer in Silicon Valley, there's a very fluid, active market. And so there's at least the potential that salaries compensation get determined by the market. Um, in in academia, we have a very high friction market. Um, in many ways, that's good. That's a or it's a consequence of something good. It's a consequence of tenure, which protects academic freedom. But what that means is that, like, external offers are infrequent. Um, there's when you're first on the job market, is the most likely you are to to have multiple offers. But after that, there's just 
for reasons that aren't really about the, the person, but that are just about the market, there's not a lot of mechanisms to peg somebody's salary to the labor market. And retention offers are kind of one of the only ways to do that. And and some universities have been proactive. I think it tends to be wealthier. Private universities have been proactive about, you know, trying to make sure everyone's paid at market rates. But, you know, I know at my university, that is de facto the only way to keep your salary pegged yeah. to the market is to get outside offers because the internal raise mechanisms just aren't sufficient. There's not enough money to keep up. And I think there's all kinds of problems with that system existing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it wastes a whole lot of everybody's time to be mm-hmm. doing these things. It does put people in a position of having to represent themselves as being interested in something, whether or not they are. But the, um, and I think there's, there's serious questions about whether that introduces an opportunity for gender bias in yeah. salaries. Um, there's no uh, so question there, I think in there's my all kinds that of, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one of, I've, I've probably mentioned this before, one of my colleagues is suing my university specifically over the fact that, uh, over pay discrimination and, and the retention system is a big part of it. So I think there's all kinds of problems with the system. But if I'm, if I'm speaking to somebody who's trying to navigate and live within the system as an individual and get, get what's equitable for them, um, I, I think given the system as it is, um, many, at many universities, pe- administrators, department heads, or whoever will tell you explicitly this is the only way to get a retention officer, offer. At other places, they the won't say that out loud, but it's de facto, sorry, to get a raise, yeah, the way, they won't say that out loud, but it's de facto the policy. And so, so I don't think that someone and the other thing that happens is sometimes you don't think you're going to leave right. but you go and interview and it's actually really nice and they make you a cool offer right. and so why not put yourself in a position to benefit from that yeah i think our positions are functionally equivalent because i do think that it's really really rare that you know for sure that you're not going to leave so all all that is required from my p- standpoint is that you have somewhat of an open mind and like do entertain the possibility of going and don't apply to places that you really 100% know you wouldn't go. Um, But I also, yeah, I do agree that it's okay to play the game to some extent. So like, yeah, to go even if you think it's a pretty small chance you would leave, to go to apply mainly for the raise, but there is some chance you would actually go. I think those are fine. So my my position is only an extreme case where you won't leave no matter what and you are doing it for a raise when you're not severely underpaid or you haven't tried other avenues to get the raise or things like that. Um, but I think, yeah, in, in practice, most people are going to be in a position at some point where it would be reasonable for them to entertain an outside offer mainly, but not a hundred percent exclusively for the chance to get a retention offer. If you're applying mainly for the raise, would you be transparent about that to your chair or would that undermine your efforts i i would i don't in a negotiation i don't think you have any obligation to disclose your motivations um i think you 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 know being ethical in a negotiation means being honest about what you're being honest about but no i don't think that i think that you can just say i got this outside offer um you know, I'm considering it, and I'd like to know if you can make a counteroffer. I don't think you have to say, 
I would go, I wouldn't go, I don't think you should lie. I don't think you should misrepresent and say things that aren't mm -hmm. true, but you're, you're not under an obligation to tell people things that undermine your position. Mm -hmm. Right. I think if your department has a pretty good track record of making people, giving people something, a raise, whatever you want, just for being, getting an interview or having a place interested in you, then it might be in your interest to reveal that earlier on in the process and not go all the way through with the interview or waiting to get an offer or whatever. And different departments are different about whether they'll react to the, at that stage or wait, or you have to have an offer in hand or what. I think, yeah, I mean, the problem is there's so much nuance in all of this. Like there's so many fine grained degrees of how realistic is it that you would actually go? How badly underpaid mm -hmm. are you? How much has your department done for you? All these things, right? Like that, that affect what, where I would be comfortable drawing the line and different people draw the line in different places, which I think is reasonable. I don't think there's only one place to draw the line. Um, yeah. But I don't know of many yeah, people doing it really completely purely for the retention. I, I don't know of anybody who's done it with knowing going into it that there's no chance they would entertain, they would go to the other place that they applied to. Uh, I mean, that's a high bar for. Yeah. Um, for but there like are places. Motivations I, you know, to get retention. Yeah. But there I are places I would never consider going. And so I, I could imagine. Right. It's not hard to think of places that are in that category. And I think it's so my rule is like, don't include places in that category if you're ever going to apply. Yeah. Although I think that I think that narrows down when like in order to get a retention offer, it has to be a place that you would be a credible threat to go. So some of those places you'd never mm -hmm. think yeah. of going are places Wouldn't where they, <clears throat> they would look at it and they either say she's not going to go there or that's a worse job and, mm -hmm. and we're not going to bother competing with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So so if your goal is to get a retention offer, it does have to be a place that it looks credible to mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. department or whoever mm -hmm. that that you you would go and and yeah I think Samin the the issue if we're getting more into the sort of nuts and bolts which is part of what I think the letter writer was interested in like something to find out is whether your institution does preemptive retentions so that sometimes um, when you, certain sometimes it's like if you Get, I mean, sometimes it's as little as somebody sends you an email saying, hey, we'd love to have you come here and, and think about hiring you, and you can show that, and, and you'll that'll shake something loose. Sometimes it's actually having an interview scheduled, and, and the preemptive thing is that they'll say, we'll make you an offer on the condition that you don't go to this interview. And so um, uh, compared to a more traditional where you actually have an offer letter in hand, and so it's kind of a just on purely sort of like nuts and bolts terms, it's a sort of um, risk reward trade-off, right? Where if you get the preemptive offer, it may be less than the most you could have gotten if you'd pushed all the way to the end, but you have a high degree of certainty. You don't have to go and take the risk that you don't get the offer and then you don't have an offer letter to, to push a counter with. So that can be, uh, but not every institution will do preemptive. I think the worst is when institutions don't do them equitably. Um, so I think, you know, this is something we've talked about in our department is trying to develop more policy around and transparency around what triggers a retention offer so everybody knows. So it's not like, oh, well, this person asked for preemptive and this person didn't, right? Um, but yeah, you have to, so, so at some places you do have to actually have an offer letter in hand and then you show that to your, or at least, you know, some kind of a negotiation in process or something. You have to have tangible evidence. Um, 
and it has to be someplace where they believe you might possibly go um, and where the conditions would be the the salary or working conditions or something else mm-hmm. would be better than what you have so that they are willing to, to make something. I'm also curious whether, um, so we've been talking a lot about salaries, um, but are there other common things that people try to get in retention offers? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we, um, I mean, salaries often part of it, but not always, but, um, People, and some of this changes as you get further in your career, right? But money, like startup money, those sorts of things, the same sorts of mm-hmm. things that, like if you're an assistant professor or you're pre-tenure, um, very much the same kinds of things that you probably negotiated for when you started would be the sorts of things on the table. As people get more senior, oftentimes the, the dollar values of those go up, but it can also be things like I want to start up a center and I want to to be director of the center or I want to have administrative staff for the center or I want like these arrangements um so when when you get into the like especially the sort of like you know rising star associate and full professor it's kind of like the sky's the limit like if you're a big enough big shot um uh, and and often though at that level it's very much contingent on like having external funding um, for those kinds of things I was just mentioning. Um, so I've I've seen, yeah, people throw all kinds of crazy stuff at people. Another one is partner hires. So like if you want to get a partner hire, having an outside offer either for just you or for you and your partner could give you leverage. Um, there was another one I thought of. Now I forgot. Oh, tenure or promotion. So if you can get an outside offer that's at the next rank from a peer institution, that could speed Mm. up the process. Yeah, And that's another, if you're considering doing that, that's something to try to find out about because some universities are set up so that they can just, someone can wave a magic wand and you're promoted and others, they have to, their, their rules say they still have to go through their process, but they may be able to accelerate it or make certain kinds of informal promises or formal promises or whatever. So that that can get really down into the weeds of what your institution's specific policy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it turns out basically I think an outside offer from an, what your university would consider a peer institution often is like a magic key to unlock. And like You could even ask for something like completely non-traditional and it might, all of a sudden the negotiations are much more wide open than if you don't have that outside offer often. Um, I still think the whole process will just be a lot more pleasant if you can do it with some some poss- some uncertainty on your part about where you would end up because it's so hard to do that double consciousness for weeks or months or whatever. Like I can't imagine doing that. You have to. I agree with Sanjay. Like don't lie, but you can go through the whole process without lying. You can like mm-hmm. answer relatively honestly. You know, avoid certain bringing up certain things, etc. But it's still, you feel, I mean, I've never been in this position, but I've been in a position of having an outside offer and having to decide what to do and and negotiating. And even without knowing ahead of time what I was going to do, it was still very, very hard to maintain this, like, stance of, like, I'm not going to show my cards. I'm going to, like, wait and see what happens and so on. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's, uh, that's a really important thing to consider. Like, if, if someone's thinking of putting themselves into this process is that there are downsides so like in in my case we um we were at one point considering moving for my partner's career and um just the 
the fact of being on the job market, I found, and this varies a lot for different people, right? But I found it, it really, it had this sort of like diffuse, many small effects kind of effect on me where it affected me socially, like having in mind, I might not be living in this town, you know, a year from now. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, um, it changes like how I interact with people. Um, it changes your attitude toward your work. Like, am I still going to be, you know, do I want to get, like, how am I thinking about being on this committee or whatever? Um, it can also, you know, moving can be very disruptive to your graduate students and postdocs if you have them. And I think the the issues around what do you disclose and when do you disclose with to them are really tricky because it has big effects on their lives and, and, it's and you very owe it to them to, to take that seriously. Secret. So it's yeah. really risky to not tell your grad students mm-hmm. if you're going to interview somewhere else because they might hear it through the grapevine. It's, I think, much better if they hear it from you. Yeah. And so I think there are, there are these. And, and also then it can, it can affect your relationships with colleagues as well. And it kind of, you know, and sometimes it's kind of revealing, right? Because, like, I think the, the good response and the response you'd hope people would mostly have is, like, you know, good for you. I respect your decisions. I respect your right to make decisions about your career, and I'll be sad if you go. And and I'll try to help. You know, cheerlead for you to get what it takes for you to stay. Right? Like that's a very constructive response. But some people get resentful. Some people get jealous if you're getting an offer and they're not. Sometimes justifiably, if if your institution sucks about giving non-retention salary raises, and so it it can mm-hmm. create all these other side effects um, that are, are just something to consider that that I think it's really, and again, it's just really unfortunate we live in a system where this is, especially past tenure retentions become uh, a major way that, a, a major way that salaries go up or don't go up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Turns out that was a big question. Yeah. That was a big <laughs> Cool. Um, Anyone have anything else to add? I don't think so. No. All right. Cool. Well, thank you, Anonymous, for a a short letter with a lot of long answer. Uh, um, And thanks, people listening. If you want to email us, if you have a letter you'd like us to read and respond to, or if you just want to get in touch with us, our email is letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. We are on the web, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at BlackGoatPod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. And we're on Instagram, instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about measuring behavior. And uh, in some sense, everything we measure, at least in, in social and personality psychology, is, is behavior, right? I mean, maybe like brain blobs aren't behavior but you know self-reports like marking a Likert scale as a behavior pressing a button on a reaction time is behavior but but what what I think we're gonna be meaning today and and part of this was inspired by yeah okay but actually I think the question of what counts as behavior is pretty tricky okay so I'll give you guys a couple examples and you can tell me if you think they're behavior or not um so like pro-social behavior right um is somebody, let's say a study is set up where participants are actually given some amount of money and they're allowed to like donate it to a charity, right? And so like they're sitting in front of a computer and they're clicking a button, but they're making a decision about what to actually do with their money. Is that behavior? Yes, if there's real money involved. Okay, but it's not behavior if they're asked, how much would you donate? 
Yeah, it's right. That's what I would say too. Um, but that's an interesting distinction because I don't know. Yeah, when you say like what actual like what normal people think is actual behavior, I also think we're often thinking about like. And they say, I yeah, mean, but if I asked article, you what we'll did you do yesterday, and you say I gave ten dollars to charity. I'm like, cool, that's an answer to the question, what did you do yesterday? If I ask you what did you do yesterday, and you're like, oh, someone asked me if hypothetically I would give $10 to charity, and I said yes. <laughs> I'd be like, that's uh-huh. not very interesting. I don't care. That's not something you did. <laughs> that's like a boring story about something I don't yeah, care yeah, about. Yeah, I agree. I just mean so- that like, that it seems like part of the distinction between what we count as behavior and what we count as not behavior is... I mean, at first glance, you could say like things that actually involve you like physically moving around and stuff like that. It's and hard to come up with a definition. They actually refer to that, but yeah. So, so hard... can I can I finish yeah, just for our listeners setting it up? So <laughs> we all read an article, <laughs> right? Thank you. Yeah, that's by, by Roy Baumeister, Kathleen Vaz, and David Funder, um, and we'll post a link in the in the show notes. It's uh, it has a funny title and and there is like some good snark and shade in the article so I uh, in addition to being an interesting argument it's also kind of fun to read but the title of the article is psychology is the science of self-reports and finger movements and so they're critiquing a tendency especially within social and personality psychology although I they kind of I think they give cognitive too much of a pass on this but we can talk about that maybe Mm um uh yeah, the difference between these sort of mostly talking about self-reports and to a little bit, you know, laboratory reaction time measures um, and contrasting that. And, and they use the they use a couple of phrases. So they, sometimes they say behavior, sometimes they say actual behavior, mm-hmm. sort of tapping into this layperson's notion. And, and sometimes they say direct observation of behavior. Um, and I, I think that but I think these so so this. I think the larger context for for this, or maybe starting from a really general point, is they're saying we're, you know, we're studying these things that aren't really related to what people are doing in their mm-hmm. real lives. And and but I think there's a bunch of distinctions, and I think this is a really interesting question, right? So one thing that's coming out of what you're saying already is consequences, right? So uh, actually giving money to a charity versus hypothetically saying you would, the difference is that something, one of those has an actual consequence on the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's in a very constructed laboratory paradigm where you're pressing a button to give money to charity, it's it's a behavior that has a consequence. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. there are interesting gray areas like between behavior and not behavior or between a self-report of behavior and a behavior. But mm-hmm. I, I think it would be missing the point of the article if we focus too much on those gray areas. Like there are huge swaths of variables that everybody would agree are behavior and we're not studying those very much. So I think like focus, I don't know, we can talk about those gray areas. That's interesting too. But we could spend the rest of the episode talking about that. And right. I yeah. I don't want to spend too much time talking on that about that. But I think like so I in part, I wonder whether the important distinction is not behavior versus non-behavior, but like the real thing versus not the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I'm sure that's also a difficult distinction as well. well but often I think yeah. we're disappointed by non-behavioral measures because they're obviously a poor proxy for right. the actual thing that we're interested in. Right. So the, what I when I teach undergrad methods, I call this method match, right? So if what you want to know about is okay. an internal state, right. then a self-report might be the best method. If you, what you want to know about is an action, then a behavioral observation measure might be the best method. And that's not always true. Okay. There are exceptions to those rules. But yeah, so... 
So yeah, may, maybe what they're complaining about is poor method match and specifically in the direction of substituting things that should be measured with behavioral observation with other methods. Yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's helpful. Yes. So I think it's also important to say this was published in 2007. Um, I think that yeah. changes the context a little bit. And there were yeah, a few so, uh, so sentences that are really amazing to read post-replicability <laughs> crisis. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. The crossing so, out the so ease I think this, is my favorite. This question I was surprised about, by that. Sorry. This question about like method match is really interesting. And, and I want to um, read a, a passage from a blog that Rich Lucas wrote recently because I, I loved this passage, right? So, so Rich... So this is from Rich's blog. We'll link it in the show notes. I once heard a talk where someone used a reaction time-based measure to assess the psychological process. After hearing the claims about the psychological process, I asked what evidence the speaker had that this particular reaction time-based measure was valid. The speaker seemed surprised by the question. Based on his response, I think he assumed that reaction times were so obviously and inherently linked to the underlying process that no validity evidence was even needed. In fact, given the way he talked about the phenomenon, he seemed to think that the reaction times he collected weren't measures of some underlying process as much as the process itself. And what, what's interesting to me about that is that those reaction time measures are, are you know, finger movements, right? They're what's criticized. We often do this, I think sometimes we kind of do this with self-reports. And, and one, of the, I mean, one of the questions I have about measuring quote-unquote actual behavior is that I think, I think we should always be asking what's the relationship between whatever actual measurement I'm taking and whatever construct I'm, uh, I think I'm measuring. Yeah. And I think we, sometimes we just assume, and it's, it's funny to me that in a reaction time setting, and I've seen people do this before, right? Where they're like, I'm measuring inhibition. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, people are pressing buttons when they're not supposed to, when a green light comes mm-hmm. on instead of a red light or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not inhibition. necessarily I mean it might be but like tell me Um, so yeah I mean I think one thing that was interesting about this paper is that they focus on all the ways in which behavior is undervalued and I can relate to much of that my own work is Mm -hmm. in behavioral observation and a lot of it rang true to me and I I really like many aspects of this paper one thing they don't talk about and I understand why they didn't and maybe it's also a distraction from the main point but is that behavior can be put on a pedestal and people can assume that oh because you directly observe behavior your measure must be valid and Mm -hmm. I yeah I have a chapter in an animal personality book about how actually if you want to measure individual differences questionnaire measures are way better at measuring global individual differences in this case in chimpanzees but it's true probably in most species including humans than sitting there and counting behaviors if what you want to know are global tendencies and differences between individuals in these global tendencies um, behavior is super super unreliable it has other advantages but if what you're trying to get at is a reliable consistent trend rather than a momentary thing then beha- behavior observation is going to be a pretty Wait, shitty way to Wait, can we go back that. to the part where the chimpanzees are filling out questionnaires? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in this case, it's uh, humans who know the chimpanzees well, rating them. But the same principle would apply to self-reporting. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> so, but I, so I think this is, I mean, this is another, I was wondering, Samin, what do you think? Do you consider informant reports to be direct observation of no, behavior? Is of it, course not. Is it, <laughs> but, but you just described the, uh, but like. If, no, I was substituting this, that for the questionnaire really, measure. That was a questionnaire Yeah, okay, but the. So I've I've faced this in my own research, right? Where we we have we have a study we're we're writing up now where people we have self reports. 
people are into social interaction. So we have their self-reports. We have them reporting about their partner using a big five measure. And then we have coders watching the tapes. Mm -hmm. um, but what the coders are instructed to do is to describe the behavior that they observed using the big five inventory. Yeah, you're right in the So gray is area. that <laughs> right? so, we, so we have coders do both. So we have one team of coders listen to the sound files in our case they're not videos they're sound and after listening to you know whatever however many sound files rate the target on the big five and then we have another team of coders listen to the sound files and every 30 seconds stop and code what behaviors happened did they laugh did they blah 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 we have a set of behaviors so we consider what the the first team does does is questionnaire ratings not behavior and what the second team does we consider behavior but you can definitely blur that line between observers filling out Likert type questions on a personality questionnaire and observers counting the number of times behaviors happen. So there's not as bright of a line as I'm pretending, but I, so again, like there are, there is some gray area, but there's also things that are clearly on one side or the other of that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th this is something that I, I mean, I struggle with because, um, uh, you know, David Funder, who's one of the authors of this paper, he has another paper on sort of trait behavior consistency, where he makes, I think, a really interesting point where he, he says that a lot of what you find about like the consistency of behavior depends on how you're thinking about behavior. And in particular, he uses, I, I believe it's been a while since I looked at that specific article, but he talks about whether you're measuring it in a way that's socially meaningful. And so the idea being that if you're saying, you know, this person acted outgoing versus if you're counting how many words they uttered, right? And and acted outgoing is a more socially meaningful way or, or something even more granular than counting words or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and th this is something that, you know, I've seen again and again, right, where, and this is why actually for that study I mentioned, why we took the approach of having the, the coders rate. Uh, the, oh, there are other reasons, too, that are sort of conceptually important for the study. But um, you just and this is kind of, I think this is kind of what you were saying before. So I mean, that you when you get down to the granular level, you just find that counting micro behaviors doesn't add up to a construct. Right. And there's a, a really mm -hmm. interesting uh, meta analysis by Judith Hall that, you know, she's looking at in the status literature, things like maintaining eye contact or using an expansive body posture that people code for when they're studying status. And it's like the, the relationships are negligible in, in terms of like validation evidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the problem is that these things are so contingent in real life, right? So you can, if you're dominant, you can stare somebody down and that's a lot of eye contact mm -hmm. or you can dismiss somebody and look away and mm -hmm. that's no eye contact and those yeah. are both ways of being dominant yeah and and we don't have ways to so i think one of the one of the difficulties with measuring quote-unquote actual behavior is that it's often not what we're interested in yeah and and a lot of studies that do that just have really unreliable measurement but the fact that it's often not what we're interested in was part of the point of their paper. There are plenty of behaviors yeah. that are inherently interesting that don't have to stand in for a much more abstract construct. So why aren't we studying how much people tell jokes, how much people gossip, how much people, I don't know, talk about sex or talk about... And those things you don't have to generalize to a broader construct. It would be stupid right, to do yeah. so, but they're interesting in and of yeah. themselves. And I would say if you're going to measure behavior, make sure that you're actually interested in the behavior you're measuring and that you're not using it as yeah. a stand-in for a much broader construct. Um, yeah. 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 Although I so so I so I totally agree with you. 
Um, but they, like, they have this passage where they put that really well. They say, whatever happened to helping, hurting, playing, working, taking, eating, risking, waiting, flirting, goofing off, showing up, giving up, screwing up, compromising, selling, preserving, pleading, tricking out, hustling, sandbagging, refusing, and the rest. So I, I agree. Those are all really interesting topics that we don't study enough. I'm, I'm not sure for a lot of those that they're, they're behaviors. behaviors, though, yeah. like... Some of them how would are, I operationalize? Though. Some of them are, but yeah. like, how would I operationalize sandbagging? Right, how would, right. I, would I operationalize flirting? Yeah, you I know, agree. Uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Rosin, I think, but has I, I mean, more I, yeah. good concrete examples of things like going to church or I don't know, like other things that are pretty re- easy to observe from an observer's mm-hmm. perspective. Whereas, yeah, I think flirting, you need to know the intention, sandbagging, same, etc. So I do think some of their examples are not great examples of this yeah. point. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree, the, and I, I like the article, despite all these objections I'm raising, I like mm-hmm. the article because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Alexa. In the article, they talk about, um, you know, uh, affirmative action for action, right? So, like, ways that journals could promote um, people or researchers using more behavioral measures. Um, I wonder what you guys think about that, because I do think that sometimes we... We assume that data that's harder to collect is more valuable, and so like as soon as something is behavior, we sort of give it. The, in the article, they suggest that we don't value it enough, but I, I do think that behavior, behavioral studies get an advantage at journals. Um, I think the point- and so obviously if there were a way to like, I guess encourage method match or yeah um, something like that, like when people are trying to make claims about essentially a behavior that they should measure behavior. Um, yeah, so I have. But would you agree that it's that that it does get an, it is treated as more valuable? Um, I have yeah. So I have a lot of opinions about this. And it's going to sound somewhat defensive because I study behavior, but I now have experience on the other side of it as an editor handling manuscripts that have behavior and seeing what the reviewers say. And my sense is that in the review process, no, I don't think it gets treated as valuable because what happens is people huh. start thinking of all these criticisms that also apply to questionnaire measures or other things, but they don't think of them when it's questionnaire measures. So they'll be like, but what if the behavior actually meant this other thing and you're coding it as this thing? It's like, that's true. That's also true of an answer to a questionnaire question. Like, what if the Uh participant interpreted it differently than how you think they interpreted it? The meaning of that response could be different than what the researcher assumes the meaning of that response is. That's true for behavior, but it's just as true for questionnaires and other kinds of measures. What I do experience is in talks, people love behavior. So Mm. it can help a lot, especially in job talks. So people really, really like the story when there's a behavior in there. Um, So it can help make your research more popular. But in the review process, my my sense, and this is just anecdote, is that reviewers become super, super critical for good reason. They see all the flaws in the method. Right. We, I think we see the ugliness and messiness of behavioral measures more easily than we see the ugliness and messiness of other measures. The other thing is that because, they say, sorry. Go ahead. The, the other thing they say that I think that really rang true to me is this frustrating experience of always being asked what's the mechanism. That it's not enough to oh, show yeah, yeah, this right. fascinating descriptive phenomenon. You have to, like, like our paper on, Mechan- well, actually, this is a really bad example because so they got published in a, in a prestige journal, but like the women and men talk in similar amount and well, that one, there's no effect. So there's no mechanism to explain, but whenever you have like this descriptive thing about like, Hey, it turns out this group does this behavior more than that group or doing this behavior is associated with this objective experience that we didn't know that it was associated with or whatever people. Yeah. The mechanism of obsession, that, that was the point that I think was 
the most exciting. I remember when I read this, when it came out, I was a first year assistant professor and I was like, yes, this is going to help me so much because they're making this point. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And they, they cite, we should also link the Rosin article. They cite Paul Rosin's article, yeah. which I love. And I think makes the very, I think it makes the connection like that, that I really like that those two, the, these two articles in tandem, because I totally agree mm-hmm. with you, Samin, that we don't do enough descriptive research on how people behave. We insist on mechanism, and then we test it really awfully with mediation models mm-hmm. that don't tell us shit. And mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, yeah, no, I, so I mean, I think one of the, one of the things when they, that section, the, you know, affirmative action for action, affirmative action for behavior. I had sort of two reservations about it. One, one is just a language one. I don't like co-opting the term affirmative action <laughs> for, for things. Um, but whatever, I'm Even not going to beat too much over that. But yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the, other, the other thing subtitle. is, I think it, um, it didn't promote any consideration of when it's useful or appropriate to, to measure behavior, right? So, so I like the point. And some of this they said elsewhere in the article, so it's not like they weren't saying this at all, right? But like... I like the point that we don't ask the sorts of questions that behavior is a good answer to often enough, whether it's just descriptive questions in general or whether it's particular domains like eating or going to church or whatever. Um, I think sometimes behavioral measures are going to be more valid than self-report, or and we should get into some of this uh, at some point. Um, Uh, But also, I think there's a sense that like, sometimes it's just like dramatic or interesting or exciting. And I'm not, Mm -hmm. I think there's a good version of that and a bad version of that. I think we have to ask why we find it exciting, right? So for me, like, and they they spend a lot of time sort of um, kind of praising classic old school social Mm -hmm. psychology. And Mm -hmm. and I think for me, two two very different examples, um, one of which they cite, the good one they they do cite. The good one that, that we often talk about together in, in interdisciplinary classes, Milgram and Zimbardo, yeah, right? Where right. The, the Milgram study was real behavior. It was dramatic, but it was dramatic because it was a real consequential behavior in a really well done paradigm. And I think you could raise questions about the sample size and some other things, but I think for its day, it was an incredibly well done study. Mm-hmm. I think the Zimbardo was just like create a dramatic situation that you can't actually conclude much about. And, and it's just kind of a... a like it was sort of, it feels a little bit like drama for drama's sake, mm-hmm. the Stanford Prison Experiment. And and so to me, like that, you know, and, and I think it, I'm totally fine with people in job talks, like doing a little drama and storytelling. <laughs> um, you know, I always tell people when they're getting ready for a talk, like if they videotape something, have a, a clip of the video in your talk be, so people can actually it. see. Yeah. I think that actually has a legit communicative function too, which is people get a if you're allowed to share it, yeah, because people get a real feel for what happens. So I think that's legit, but it's also like exciting, right? Um, but yeah, we, I mean, we should talk about sort of like what, uh, like when is behavior better and when isn't it? I guess we've talked about that a little bit already, but like. I drew a picture of an elephant because there's an elephant in the room, which is that uh, all a lot of those classic studies were super, super underpowered, not necessarily Milgram, I can't remember for sure, but this is like the big problem with behavior, right? Like it's really, really hard mm-hmm. to do well with a decent sample size. And it's impossible to do well with a decent sample size and have multiple studies in your article. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's another thing in social psychology, the JPSB expectation that everything's a multi-study article has made it hard to publish in that journal and other journals like that. 
And they also point out, which I thought was really interesting in that look reading that at the time versus reading it now, that if you run a behavioral study and you get a null result, you're much more screwed than if you ran a much easier to run study and get a null result. And it's so funny how they just completely accept that, yeah, of course you're screwed. There's nothing yeah. you can do. You've got to move on to the next yeah. one, file drawer. Um, and I don't think I, that that I don't think that caught my eye when I read it in 2007. So it's funny to read it now. But yeah, I mean, that was that, more. We were all fish and that was the water, right? Yeah, like yeah. that wouldn't have struck me. That didn't strike you. Like, mm-hmm. of course, that's what that was just. That's how it was like so i don't business, i don't yeah. hold it's yeah it's funny <laughs> no, in retrospect no. but i don't i don't hold them accountable at all for saying that because it's like yeah. yeah everyone said that yeah 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 i really like the sentence moreover the sad fact is that many studies fail to show meaningful significant differences yeah <laughs> <laughs> But that's, I think the, the professional incentives issue is really important. And this is something that I struggle with because we do a lot of studies in my lab that take a really long time that involve real, the procedures involve behavior. So we do a lot of stuff with real people having real social interactions. They're not vignettes. They're not Confederates. Um, and we try to do sample size planning for power and precision and and all the other kind of stuff. And because we study individual differences, that often means that our um, our main route to that is larger sample sizes. Where you can't you can't improve an individual difference study with by turning into within subjects analysis. I mean, some, someone's gonna email us and tell us how you can, but in general, right? <laughs> like, you, you know, mm-hmm. it's a it's a much harder prospect if you're studying individual mm-hmm. differences. Um, so so it just like and I, I struggle with this because we take a long time to do these studies and and I think there are really cool studies um, and I'm glad we're entering an era where it's a little easier to publish null or messy results I, I think we have a long way to go on that but I, I think about this a lot too yeah and I think you know this is kind of going back to like what you were saying Alexa that sometimes reviewers can value effort just for effort's sake and that you know people can give a pass to like underpowered studies because behavior is so hard to measure, whatever. I don't think we should Mm -hmm. do that. I think we should do that in some cases when behavior was really warranted and it's an important, interesting question and the conclusions are calibrated. So the authors say like this was a study with very little precision. It's just a starting point, blah, blah, blah. It's grist for the mill. But but I think we should also just like, yeah, it would be better. I would rather, rather than finding a way to let people publish incremental tiny bits of data that aren't going to tell us much. I would rather find a way to let people publish fewer papers. And then when they finally get that large N behavioral study out, that it counts for more than one line on your CV, that it somehow is mm-hmm. like, it's sh- it shouldn't be about the number of publications. It should be about how much have you contributed. And one right. publication with one study can contribute a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think the problem, if researchers are faced with this decision between conducting a behavioral study that's less than ideal because you can't really power it enough um, or conducting a more well-powered non-behavioral study. Um, I guess like, I think logically what you need to do in that case is you need to study the, the thing that you can effectively study with the resources that you have. Um, but the problem with that is that then um, we're going to ignore a lot of phenomena because yeah. especially if we're, if we're still working in this like individual lab model right. where each person is like only using the resources that they have within their lab, it's going to be rare for people to really have, unless like you say, you know, rates of publication change or, you know, the way that labs work together changes. Um, 
because then yeah people will just end up choosing the thing that they can study that and neglecting the questions that are hard to answer yeah and i i, I think and this is not on the researchers that do behavior so i i agree with you samin that like the if the conclusions are appropriately calibrated we should allow you know we we should be more tolerant of smaller sample sizes or more uncertainty or whatever if somebody did something that was worth doing because it it had a validity or a consequential impact kind of thing going on but like when i think about an example like an example of a a behavior is the marshmallow task and um that's come under a lot of new questioning recently about like how, you know, how robust are those studies? And, and Yuichi Shoda gave a, t- a lightning talk at, at the last SIPs where he basically he put up the original article that had the, the longitudinal marshmallow task. And it had all these caveats and calibration of conclusions and said, you know, why, like, this is a small sample. And, and you know, it, it, he sort of pointed out, he's like, look, we said all this stuff. Um, yeah, what the field did was took that and ran with it. And now it's like two decades later where we're coming back around and realizing like, oh, this this wasn't. So it's like the I saw this phrase on on someone used on Twitter not long ago. They said hedge drift to this phenomenon, like the original report has hedges mm-hmm. and then we drift oh, away from them over time. Um, and they, they were talking about it in the context of some people, sometimes people deliberately game this where they, they know that they can put mm-hmm. the hedges, but then I, I think mm-hmm. in Yuichi's case, that's not, the, that's not true. Like, I think, you know, he really all along has wanted people to be careful about, about that work, but it's just a social phenomenon. It's like, you see the abstract or you see the result or whatever, and you just run with it. Um, so I don't, I don't know what to do about that. I don't think the solution is to yeah. insist that people can't study behavior anymore. Yeah. So I have an idea. I'm going to like share it now, even though I might get scooped. So I'm, I'm going to put this in my vision statement <laughs> in my application for psych science editor, but whatever, I won't get it anyway. So it's fine. Um, but one thing I think journals can do is to advertise more accurately when they accepted a paper because it was really interesting preliminary thing that might that we're really uncertain about versus this was like really solid we have a lot of certainty about this now and maybe have different sections of the journal for more speculative stuff that's really not ready for basing policy on or any or like being super confident about versus stuff that's like no the contribution here is that it's more definitive you had a blog post about this like a million years ago Sanjay that like research can't or almost can never be both groundbreaking and definitive Mm -hmm. and so I think if journals did a better job of advertising which of those two and that's too much of a dichotomy but to be way overly simplistic like was this paper valuable did we decide to accept it because of the groundbreakingness of it and it's really preliminary or the the definitiveness of it and then if a reproducibility project came along and said we're going to submit all your studies to replication and see what percentage replicate you can be like cool but just so you know we told you ahead of time that in the groundbreaking section we expect we're taking more risks and we expect more false positives in the definitive section that's where we're more confident we would bet money that the the false positive rate would be low and then hopefully journalists and policymakers and readers would also that hedge would be really built in it wouldn't just be somewhere in the discussion section it would be like it's in this section for a reason and we're we're like explicitly telling you that we're less confident in these papers mm-hmm. yeah i i like that i think that the I think something that, you know, this article and this argument and discussion about measuring actual behavior 
you know, there are other topics where similar kinds of considerations come up. So studying rare or hard to reach populations mm-hmm. is another one where, where for different reasons, um, it's not the effort of measurement, it might be the effort of recruitment, but, but the, the result is also they may have, you know, smaller samples or m- require more labor to get to a traditional sample size or whatever. Um, and I think some of these some of these things that would benefit measuring actual behavior would also benefit um, getting yeah. studies of diverse samples into the literature. Yeah. I think there's still probably in both domains there's still a, a behind all of that there's a resource allocation problem, which is that mm-hmm. you know we the the ultimately the solution I think this is what journals can do right, but I think ultimately the solution is like we need to spend more money studying certain yeah. populations yeah. and we need to spend more money studying actual behavior and so it's on funders to uh, you know to give people the resources to do that, but I think at the at the publication end what you're describing Samin would would benefit a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering what you guys think. So. I assume that we would all agree that actually I don't know about this. So has measurement of behavior declined? I I would love to they have a in the article they they sort of did some yeah. semi-formal coding. I I don't know um something I've wondered about and I don't know if this is actually how frequent this is, but you know, there's some I think some potentially promising trends where I I you know, the technology is available now where, you know, I think studying social media is really interesting. It's it's mm-hmm. getting easier to get data, although there are a lot of validity issues and other complications in, in sort of what you do with social media data. I think the growth of smartphone sensor data has a lot of potential. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that those things are big enough that if you did a, like, count all the articles in JPSB analysis that they'd be making a dent. But I think that the the spread of technology that can be turned into measurement instruments of people's behavior is creates all kinds of privacy issues yeah. it creates all kinds of scientific validity issues but it might be moving things but i i right. i would i wouldn't guess that it's moved enough yet but it might be heading in that direction i don't yeah. know what do, you, what do you guys think well i was i was going to ask why you think it's declined as if if it has actually declined and the two most common answers that i hear to that question are because of the ease of collecting data online although perhaps there are some ways to collect behavior online and i think that's related to some of the stuff you're just talking about sanjay um and also related to what we were just talking about expectations for higher power um, and I'm wondering, what, do you guys think? Yeah. What do you guys um, think has cl- so caused the decline if it has happened? Rich Lucas and I did some coding of journal articles in social and personality psych over the last like 10 or 15 years. And there hasn't been a decline in behavioral measures in that time, but it's been very low, consistently low the whole time. But there has been an increase in online. So basically subject pools got replaced with online samples, not in all cases, but um, but behavior didn't change. Um, and I think sample sizes did increase in that window. So I don't think the increase in sample size and move to online is really having much of an effect on behavior, but partly because it's so low to start off with. Maybe compared to the 70s, it's declined, but I don't think it's declined meaningfully in the period of like pre versus post replicability crisis or things like that. But I do think it's low. I think it's increased in personality psych just anecdotally. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe our data actually su- suggests that's not the case. 
but so Rich Lucas had an editorial in JRP at some point, or it was a policy, maybe I'm not sure, um, where he said basically we're we're going to desk reject papers that only use self reports, except in rare cases. Like you have to have a really good reason why correlating self reports with other self reports in a cross sectional convenience sample is worth publishing. Um, there are exceptions, and then they were willing to entertain them, but that basically became very very rare in JRP. Um, so I think there's a trend. Maybe that doesn't mean people are using behavior. They could just be using other non-self-report methods. But I think it's not clear that it's been going down, at least in the last three decades. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a floor effect, though. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to be going down to be a problem, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh... Anyone have anything anything else you wanted to talk about? I think we're... we didn't talk about the brain bashing they did, but we let our readers discover that for themselves. <laughs> that was that was where some there was some good shade about the brain in there. Um, mm -hmm. If you yeah, um, people can uh, uh, people can can go look for that. Um, cool. Well, yeah, we'll we'll definitely post this a link to this article. Um, and Rich's blog post and and the Rosin article, which maybe maybe I I feel like I never shut up about that Rosin article because I love it so much. Maybe someday we should do an episode about that. But uh, um, uh, yeah, thank you everybody who's listening uh, to the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.